Why don't you have a seat and let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you for the truth and the reality of what we see is not all there is this morning. A kingdom, Lord, that none of us could imagine exists. And Lord, it is both entered time and made itself known to us through Jesus, but it is outside of time and eternal and kind of breaks our brains when we think about it. And God, we come to those truths this morning with some very real and just kind of in the dirt stuff that's going on in our lives. And Lord, some of us this morning, maybe just getting here was a chore. Um, Things we're facing in this past week uh, with family or at work or school coming up. God, just difficulties. And Lord, we say with the saints throughout history, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit this morning. Lord, give me faith. Your word says it's a gift. Let it be stirred in us this morning. God, we we bring our morning prayers today, our hurts, our sorrows, our doubts, our hopes to you, Jesus. We come to this place, Lord, not because we have it figured out, not because we're doing great. We come because we need hope. We need encouragement. And so, God, as we sit together in your word, uh, would your spirit be walking these aisles, hands on shoulders and hearts, Lord, moving and stirring in us. We bless you, Jesus. We thank you that you're here uh, and that you love us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, glad you're here. Thanks for coming. If uh, we're in the book of Revelation, if you have never been here, we're about halfway through, which means you've missed nothing. No, you've missed a little bit of something. But I truly believe this when it comes to gathering that God truly is outside of time and he actually knows where you live. Do you know that? (laughs) He knows where you live. He is there when you're asleep. Uh, One of the things that I pray for all the time is because of the thickness of this, my thick-headed stubbornness. I pray and I give the Lord permission at night. And I'm like, you know what? If there's stuff that I'm not getting while I'm awake, can you just do it while I'm asleep? Can you invade my dreams? No joke. I ask him. I let him. uh, You have all of me. I want to hear from you. And so he knows where you live He knows the things that are going on. He knows the things that might distract you this morning. And your job this morning is not to have a comprehensive understanding of Revelation chapter 11, which is what we're going to talk about today, which consequently is described by commentators as the most difficult passage in Revelation to interpret. So, bye. (laughs) No, I'm going to try. And you may be like, "Mm, I don't know. Some of you let me know too. It's like, thanks a lot. Um, But that's okay. Our job is not for a comprehensive understanding. Our job is to encounter the living God. And I want to tell you, we will not cover everything in Revelation 11 today. I can't. There's no way. And some of them are like landmines. And I'm like, no, thanks. They're difficult. But we will we'll try to go into some more of those things in our podcast. If you don't know, we're trying to do a behind the scenes, behind the sermon. It's kind of the cutting room floor Um, And we actually answer your questions. And so sometimes you let us know, why didn't you talk about this on Sunday? 
And we're like, I don't know, but let's talk about it now. And so I'll try to go into Joe and Carl and Daniel, Sammy. When we get into this stuff, we'll do more of it in our podcast. So I won't cover everything, but it also allows me to remind you, apocalyptic literature is supposed to be like looking at a painting. It's supposed to be like walking into this magnificent work of art and standing in front of it and being like, wow. And we're not supposed to answer, hey, what do you think? What do you feel about that painting? Well, it's true. We don't do that with paintings, do we? How about a song? You hear a song. Does somebody, is that the first thing you say about the song? It's true. No, we listen and we feel and God is using our imaginations and that's what he's doing with the first century church. And it's supposed to be this painting that we look at. And actually later in the middle of the sermon, I'm going to show you a painting that God's been using in my heart. But I want to focus your hearts and minds this morning because where I thought I would go with this passage, this passage is on the two witnesses. I actually had this titled, Can I Get a Witness? Anybody ever heard that? It's a church thing. Can I get a witness? Like, and it was weird because I felt like God was like, mm, no. <laughs> Sometimes I'll have it on, and I had it on the top of my notes. And I was just kind of letting it stew. Is this thing flickering at me? <laughs> May need to turn it off if it's going to do that. Um, stop it. I feel like something's <laughs> happening to my notes. <laughs> Can we kill it? Anybody back there? Anybody? Uh, there we go. Yes, Luke, 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 Luke. He can do it. All right. But I felt like God said, flicker, 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 flicker. Redirect. Don't go for the easy, can I get a witness? And instead, God on trial. Because where are witnesses required? Courtroom. Stop looking at that light. In the courtroom, they'll get it in a minute. If not, I will we'll climb up there and pull the cord. Um, in the courtroom, witnesses, credible witnesses are required in the courtroom. And if your attorney who's worth your weight in whatever, salt or gold or whatever, and you are trying to win a case, what's one of the things that they do? I'm going to discredit this witness, because that will be devastating if everybody believes that the character behind that person and what they're saying is true. So God is looking for credible witnesses. Who? Yes. Wow. Maybe super bright. Can we kill it? Or down a little bit? There we go. God's looking for credible witnesses. So instead of this, and I think I've approached witnessing that way. It's like, yeah, maybe I'll do it some. Maybe. You imagine if you got in a courtroom and these like attorneys lined up their star witnesses and they're they like, I'm going to call your first witness. And you call them. They're like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure how I feel about this today. I don't think I'm going to get. No, the Lord wants us to get up and to speak for him in a way that has weight and authority. So I want to show you this uh, picture of this. Uh, it was a British TV series. It was a play before that. You can watch this for free on YouTube. I encourage you, if this is something that interests you, that it's called God on Trial. And these prisoners in a concentration camp actually put God on trial for the Holocaust. And Elie Wiesel wrote a book called Night. And he actually confirmed this, this happened. He said, I saw it happen. 
a trial. So what do you have in a trial? Uh, you have a prosecution, defense, evidence, witnesses for both sides. And so in the trial, and you can see it in the, the teleplay, and it's, it's, it's like a play because there's a lot of dialogue, but I think it's, it's fantastic. I think it makes us wrestle things. Um, it is the rabbis who are the ones who are bringing the strongest case for the prosecution. It is the ones who have been trained in Scripture their whole life who are saying, he is guilty for this. He should be condemned. How could he let this happen? And I want you to have this image of the world thinking about God, because they do. There's a fancy term called a theodicy, which is the problem of pain and suffering. It's the question of questions that people ask. If you want them to consider believing in God, they'll go, yeah, but what about pain? What about suffering? How are we going to deal with that? And so God is on trial. We're not on trial. It's not us. It's him. He is on trial before the world and he wants witnesses. And so the rabbis are condemning. They're prosecuting. They are saying he's guilty. And then all of a sudden, this guy stands up. And he's not even one of the witnesses. He's just kind of in the, he's in the, the audience. He's listening, sitting on one of the bunks. And he's not a learned man. He's not a scholar. And he has lost two children. He's lost two children and he has lost his wife. And he stands up and what they say is not only is God on trial, he's not even here. He left. And the guy stands up and he says, I I think he's here. And everybody's like, what do you know? You're not a scholar. You don't know the Bible. You don't know scriptures. He's like, I think he's here. He said, sometimes in the morning, I feel him on my shoulders. And then he puts his hand on his head because for Jews, this is kind of interesting because for us, we uh, take our hats off for, take your hats off and everybody stand up. And Jews actually put their hats on when they want to read the scripture. And so he says, I think he's here. And then he stands and he puts his hand on his head. And I don't even remember the Psalm. I just remember the feeling I had. He starts to quote a Psalm. And in that group of prisoners, most of them are against God and think he's guilty. But four or five of them also put their hands on their heads as he's quoting this Psalm. And he's like, he closes his eyes and it's the word is coming out of him. And it's this fabulous moment of the person who shouldn't be speaking in defense of God has had the worst things happen in their life, is in one of the worst historical things that we can all think of in the Holocaust and a concentration camp. He's the one bearing witness. That's a little different than, can I get a witness? Isn't it? I want you to hold on to that image. And even if that's all you get today, as we read this, and because I really do think sometimes me talking about how God has impacted me and our, whoever's speaking or teaching or Bible studies that you're in or people that you talk to, it's really about you getting into it yourself. It's not so that you can learn from me. It's so that you can learn from the Holy Spirit yourself. So even if just that gets you to go, huh, all right, I want to I learn about this. That's great. That's fine. Tune me out the rest of the time. But hold on to the image because I want it to mess with you. It messes with me. In the same situation, how would you speak? You've lost family members. You're in the worst possible circumstances in the world. Evil is winning. You feel like evil is winning. God is mocked. Your faith is mocked. How would you speak? How would you defend him? Cheap, quick phrases, cliche, God is good. 
He works together for good all things. Is that how we would respond? Maybe the more important question is, how will you speak now? The weight of what you say, how you live, and your character matter eternally when it comes to God being on trial. You may be on the other side of the courtroom. You may be standing right there with the prosecution going, yeah, he's guilty. That's okay. It's a great place to start. That's the authentic place of faith, believe it or not, that you start with. Because here's the thing, the metaphor and the image and the historical lesson from the Holocaust and even this teleplay, it's actually a reality. (laughs) It's a reality for us. We are not on trial, but God is. And he wants witnesses. He wants witnesses. So last week, if you weren't here, I'll give you just a quick snapshot. John has been speaking for God. He has been being a witness. The church has been a witness, but you know what they're doing now? Mm. This is too hard. We don't like how this makes us feel. We don't like what people are doing to us when we speak for God. So we're going to take a break on that. And the angel comes to John and to the churches and says, hold on, hold on. You must, and if you remember the end of chapter 10, John, you must speak again. And John's like, I did already. He's like, no, no, again, you must bear witness for me. Can't keep this to yourself. Greatest news ever. You must tell others. We've been trying. We're weary. We're beat up. We're confused as to what it even means to witness for Jesus. They're possibly doubting God themselves. They're struggling to continue because there were consequences for speaking for Jesus. We know that experience as well, but Still, you must speak. He's been asked not just to relay the information. He's been asked to eat it. Eat this book. And the angel says, it's going to taste sweet, but then your stomach is going to hurt. It's going to hurt. There's going to be a bitterness. And the reason it's sweet because it's God's word. And there's an instinctive part of us. Even if we're rebelling against the Lord's truth in our life, even if we find a way to just take up just a hell road for a time. What happens in that process? Holy Spirit's like, he's just going after you. And you're like, no. And he's like, yes, 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 yes. And he comes after you, even when other people, maybe they try to talk to you. It's your parents, people that love you. And they say, you really should. And you're like, no, 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 no. And the Holy Spirit's like, I can come in and talk to you even if you don't want me to. And you find it's sweet. It really is sweet to follow his way. But then there's this other part of it that's like, this also makes me, this is hard. Why? Because there's judgment is a part of his truth and rejection of that truth from others stings and it hurts. It's bitter. That's why this is bitter, but you still got to speak. And so it's at this moment for that early church and for John, his stomach is hurting. He's like, I ate it. Oh my God. this is And the the angel says, yeah, you're going to need to speak, but listen up. And then we get to chapter 11. So he's standing there. He needs spiritual Tums or Pepto. Chapter 11, verse 1. So I was given a measuring reed, like a rod, with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there. Interesting. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it. Because it's been given to the nations and they will trample. Whenever you see the word trample in the Bible, concern, it should concern you a little bit. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days. So 42 and 1260, those are the same things. This amount of time 
when there's trampling and there's witnessing. They're overlapping. And they're dressed in sackcloth. This is a message of repentance. This is in keeping with the prophets. They're coming in humility, but they're definitely saying you have to repent. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anybody wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths. Oh no. <laughs> Let's just burn them up, Lord. Let's just burn them up. They don't like what we're saying. We're just burn them. Fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. How many of us have had an experience of witnessing like that? How many feel that kind of authority in your words? No, you're like, Hey, you should, uh, it's not even real words. It's just typing Facebook or Instagram. You should watch this sermon. That's my witness, Lord. Or I have a bumper sticker on my car with a fish. <laughs> I am a strong witness for Jesus. <laughs> just want you to go there a little bit. It's okay. We need to talk about these things. So first, the basics. We have instructions to do some measuring. Measure God's temple. And we got two heavyweights, two heavyweight witnesses. These guys are pros, if you will. They're speaking for God for a set amount of time. And during that set amount of time, the nations are allowed to just kind of pound them, okay? Trample. So John's definitely pulling from the Old Testament and we're not going to go to all these places. Maybe we'll get it in the podcast, but he's pulling from Daniel. He's pulling from Zechariah. There's going to be things he's going to talk about later in the book of Revelation that will draw back in. So he's like that. We said that in the first few verses. He's like a kid in a candy store when it comes to the Old Testament. He's like, ooh, 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 I'm going to pull from here and here and here. And he mixes these metaphors and scriptures beautifully. So Lord, why are you showing John the temple? Why do you want him to measure it? which would include the church then too. So why they're struggling to be a witness and you want him to measure the temple. Interesting. Is this like one of those wax on, wax off, paint the fence? Anybody know Karate Kid? It's, I know it's an old movie, but is this one of those things? Why are you making me do this? Like, what's this really going to do in the end? And so measure the temple and the altar, including the people who worship. Measure it all. So, what temple? What are we talking about? So I'm going to take a position. But remember I said we can be mushy middle. You can be here. You can be here wherever you land. That's okay. One of the books that I'm using is called Discipleship on the Edge, Daryl Johnson. He says, I agree, doesn't mean you have to, but that the word temple here cannot refer to a literal brick and mortar temple. Because if you believe the, that book of Revelation was written in 96 AD, what happened in 70 AD was the whole thing was ripped down. Jesus said it would happen. Not one stone left on the other. You can go to Jerusalem. You can actually see evidence of this. The stones are still laying in piles. It happened. And so he's not measuring something real. Now, some people would disagree. Other scholars would say, no, 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 it was written earlier. And so that's why it's real. So that's okay. That's fine to land there. But I'm going to go with this one just to let it stew for a little bit. If it is not a literal temple, what is he talking about? What does he mean when he says temple? How am I going to measure something that's not literal? <laughs> How can I measure this thing? So this blow my mind, like 
stuff I'm learning recently. What do the Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark, the tabernacle, the, wonder, the wilderness wandering tabernacle, the earthly temple, and the new Jerusalem have in common? They all have the same design and layout, and they all serve the same purpose. I've been learning some stuff from Tim Mackey on this, and Michael Morales has a book on the temple, but the design of the Garden of Eden was such that Eden was the Holy of Holies, and then it moved out from there. The design of Noah's Ark, three levels, the top level being same kind of design, the temple, you look at the way it's laid out, and you're like, wait a minute, what's the purpose of this? The purpose of all of these structures and things that you see is that God would have a place to dwell, a dwelling place for God, a visual representation of his glory, a place and dwelling that is there to tell a story of God's salvation. People saw the temple and they were in awe, especially Solomon's temple. It was one of the wonders of the world. People came just to see it, but it's there to tell a story, to tell God's story of salvation, to tell it's an invitation and a promise that God is here. God is dwelling in our midst in spite of us. So that's Old Testament. So again, we got Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark, Tabernacle, Earthy Temple, New Jerusalem, all with the same purpose that God could dwell among his people. How about Jesus? What did he say about the temple? John chapter two, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they laughed at him. But John gives you a hint. He does a little parenthetical and he says, oh, by the way, he was talking about his body. So Jesus is already changing the game on the temple, the dwelling place of God. And in John chapter one, in the beginning, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word made his home among us. You know what the word is? Tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us. He dwelt with us. God is with us. How about the rest of the New Testament? How does it talk about the temple? First Corinthians three, do you not know that you are the temple and that the spirit of God tabernacles in you? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you? Second Corinthians, we are a temple of the living God. Just as God has said, I will tabernacle in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. First Peter 2, Ephesians 2, you also living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a dwelling place for God. You are a holy priesthood of that house. And then Revelation 21, we kind of cheat a little bit, but we see the new creation, the whole beautiful thing that we're all supposed to be destined for. And what does John see? He says, I looked and there was no temple. Where's the temple? And then he said, because God and the lamb are the temple. Measure that. John, measure the temple, measure the people who are worshiping. But he also said, there's a part where I don't want you to measure as well. The outer court, which would have been for the Gentiles in the temple. But what Daryl Johnson and other scholars, and this is kind of going with that same theme, if we're going with a non-literal, but that this represents the people of God and God dwelling in us, that there are, if you know Christ today, that I'm looking at a room full of temples, 
people that have God, that there's a part that means you are protected. You are measured. This is God's. So kind of think about like property lines. You ever, like if you measure a property line, you go from here all the way to here, neighbor is mine. <laughs> I don't know if you do that, but some people are like really into their lines. We're going to call the surveyor in the city so I can show you it's my line. But we measure to say, this belongs to me. God measures and said, this is defined. This is a boundary. This is protected. This is mine. In the book of Daniel, we see it in a negative sense. Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, thinks he's all that. And God says to him, hey, dude, not really, but hey, dude, you have been measured and found wanting. And he dies that night. So measure that temple, but don't measure outside. So Eugene Peterson says this about the outside part. Again, we're going with that symbolic represents the people of God. The number, which we'll go into the numbers more in the podcast some. Um, I bet I'll get some questions about the numbers, but I'm not smart enough to know what the numbers mean all the time. So I go with the symbolic meaning of numbers in Revelation. That's kind of what the commentators that I'm reading, and it seems like a good place. So let me just go there for now. 42 months, three and a half years. Seven is the number of perfection and completion in the scriptures. And so a good possible interpretation for 1260 days, those, the time those guys would be able to witness and or 42 months is that the time when Jesus established the new temple on earth, you, until he comes back. That that is symbolically the three and a half years. Let's put it into more, let's put more flesh on it. That's the time we have to witness. That's the time we have to speak for God, but it's also unmeasured because it's unprotected. There will be stuff happening. It will be difficult. You will want to quit. Measured, you belong to him. This part, unmeasured. So as he measures the witness of the church, the witness of the temple of God, how are we doing in this? How are they doing at the time? They're kind of pulled back. John and the churches were like, we don't want to do this anymore. How are we doing? Are we bumper sticker Christians only? Facebook posts? You, just, you should see the chosen. You should see the chosen. That's all I'm going to say. You should see the chosen. Is that what we do? We just toss, we just toss some things out there. At the time of a struggling church, and let's just include at the time of a struggling worldwide church to be an effective witness, when we are measured, how are we doing? Let me just say this. I think we have a witness problem. I think we've got a witness problem. And it's okay to admit that. It's okay to admit I'm admitting it about myself. I believe John and the churches need a shot in the arm. I think they need a pat on the back. I think to remember who they are, who God is, what he's called them to do. So God measures, has him measure to remind them Hey, this is what you're called to do, to be a witness. And so in that place, the outside place, the unprotected place, he shows John two heavyweights, two witnesses. Who are these guys? Who are these guys? Apparently, they breathe fire from their mouths. So I picked up 
uh, one of the Left Behind books and read this scene as kind of interpreted by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. It's a pretty powerful scene, actually. Uh, I think it's Apollyon is the book that it's in. But it's at the Western Wall. And if there's one place I know for sure on the earth that you should not talk about Jesus, it is the Western Wall. <laughs> I've been there. It's such tight security. It is, this is the Jews' place. You can come here. You can take a picture. You can pray, but do not say anything about your Messiah. This is not the place. So, yeah, it's a great place to stage that scene. The two witnesses are there in Jerusalem and they're at the Western Wall. And so if you, if you see this, read this in the book and I watched it on YouTube. It's old. You may tell you old. It's four by three. You know, when you watch something online and it's like four by three perspective and grainy, you're like, oh, give me UHD, high definition. So anyway, Kirk Cameron is there with his camera and here's the two witnesses, and it's Moses and Elijah. And it is a powerful scene. They are proclaiming who Jesus is. And there's a Jewish guy who doesn't believe in Jesus, the Messiah. So the two witnesses are speaking. And he goes, hey, do you want me to translate for you? He's like, no, no, no. I can hear it in English. So really powerful. God is translating the words, and they're speaking verses from the scripture. And you're like, this is awesome. It's on TV going around the world. Yes, two witnesses, powerful witness. We need people who can speak like this. This is awesome, supernatural. And then they cut the feed and the guys with guns go to shoot the witnesses and they burn them up. And the scene is these guys in military gear with their guns rolling around on the ground, burning up. And I'm like, oh, that I don't know if, I'm not sure. Not that there isn't judgment, but is that witness? Is that what we're, there's a time in my life I would have been like, that's so awesome. Burn them up, Lord. Those enemies, burn them up. It reminded me though of something. Uh, I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. And so I love the Vols. I'm not that much into the NFL football stuff, but college football is my jam. So I pull for Tennessee and Tennessee football is crazy. When people don't like what's happening, they throw Jack Daniels bottles from the upper deck. Like it's crazy place to be if you want to watch a football game. So 107,000 people fit in the stadium at that time. We're all trying to get to our seats. It's a Saturday. So there's like at least 30 to 50,000 people all trying to make their way into the stadium to get to their seats. And here's this guy on a moped and he's got a helmet on, black visor, you can't see him. And he has a flag and spray painted on the flag as he's weaving through all these people trying to get to their seats is all that matters is you're going to hell. And not, I, I hear the intent. Of course, he thinks this is my witness. I'm being a witness and I know I'm growing. But even at that time, as a young pastor, I was like, okay, I know it's important to speak to people about Jesus. I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. That's, I want to breathe fire and consume people. That's not, I want to be an authentic and effective witness. So Eugene Peterson believes that this section with the two witnesses is John replaying something that he witnessed, the transfiguration, where he go up on a mountain and there are two guys with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And after the vision, they disappear and it's just Jesus and the disciples. And he says, your turn, your turn. So John, early churches, you don't want to witness. 
Let me remind you who you are. Let me remind you the history here. How do we know this is Moses and Elijah? Who called down fire from heaven to burn up the altar, the sacrifices? Elijah. Who turned water into blood with the staff that the Lord had given him? Well, that was Moses. And so can there be a literal return of Moses and Elijah in the future? Of course. That doesn't violate anything to say, yes, and I will be like, heck yeah, let's go. Western Wall, I want to listen. I want to watch this happen. We know that there could be future fulfillments of these things. But what I want to do personally is I want to respond to the text now. And the early churches needed to respond then to the fact that their witness had been measured and been found wanting Chad, your witness is wanting. How do you respond to seeing Moses and Elijah? So Eugene Peterson said, this is a reminder that we are all called to carry out this mission. Moses spoke the law. Elijah prophesied. I love Eugene Peterson's definitions of these two things. Law is the revelation of God's truth. It's God saying, this is what is real. I know what you think in the world, but this is what is real. This is my truth. And prophecy is the application of that truth that is real. It's the ability to see it lived out in your life, Moses and Elijah. That's an effective witness. And so he even says, like, it's about who you are when you're brushing your teeth, when you are studying, when you're voting in an election, when you're spending your money. Has the truth of God and the reality of who he is affected your whole being? Because that is a witness. That is something that people will notice. It's how to live in the everyday, the mundane, and to speak. It's a proclamation that God's truth must be embraced as the truth of my life. It speaks to our will, our desires, asks us to participate in his will, his desires. So a summary of this. Law tells us how God is involved in our lives. Prophecy tells us how we are involved in God's life. Witness. How are you doing with this? Are you speaking? So perhaps you read this and you're like, okay, all right, I'm going to do better. I'm going to go beyond the Facebook post. I'm going to go beyond the bumper sticker. I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to pray for somebody. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I want to be a better witness. Hold that thought because read what happens to Moses and Elijah or whoever these guys are, or whoever they are in spirit when they actually do this. Verse seven, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them conquer them, and kill them. Oh, their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will look at their bodies for three and a half days, not permit their bodies to be put in a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them, celebrate, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. After three and a half days, though, the breath of life from God enters them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. And at that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified, gave God glory, gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. What does it mean to be a witness? At one time, and I've been walking with Jesus since I was eight years old, when I went forward, terrified of hell, um, 
I would have told you it's being able to write out your story in a couple of paragraphs and tell somebody, I was this way and now I'm this way. And do you want to accept Jesus too? Second though, kind of got tired of that and found that it wasn't very popular. And so I grabbed on to the phrase incorrectly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Anybody know this one? Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, who knows it? Use words. He never said it, but we love it. Why? Because that's better. <laughs> Yo, yeah, I'm all about that. I am, I'm just living. I don't need to say anything. I don't need to speak. People will know. If they really want to know, they'll ask me. Not, I don't think that's it either. So witness, if you know anything about the original languages, is the word martus, and it's where we get the word martyr. To be a witness is to be someone who tells the truth and is willing to give up your life for it. And this kind of witness, yes, powerful. Yes, they're calling down with authority connected to heaven, but it also gets you killed. Gets you killed and then resurrected. So that's great, but it gets you killed. The beast is introduced here. and We're going to talk more about the beast, but it's Easy way to just go there right away is not to wonder who it is in the future. There may be a personification of the beast in the future that is like, wow, that is the beast. But for now, it's anything anti-God, anti-Christ, anything wants to make war against those who follow him. The beast comes up to kill, conquer, to make war. So what have I missed when it comes to witness, a true definition of witness. And I would say, if I say anything, I would say this. Witness has definitely been lost in translation. We've missed something. We've reduced it down to something that's easier. We've made it an intellectual exercise. Just believe these things or spouting moral advice at people. That's our witness, just to tell people how bad they are or to condemn them. Something's off. Something's off. John and those people, Early church, they didn't want to do it anymore. So God's saying, watch this, watch these guys. Look what happened to them. And then look what happened to them. They're killed. So they're killed because they're saying something of such value that it's worth killing them for the people that are threatened by it. And I just, I, where I kind of landed in this passage, and sometimes it's an image that grabs me. But when I was just thinking about, man, my witness, I never feel threatened. <laughs> I never feel like I'm getting anywhere close to somebody being like, you cannot say that. I've, I feel like I'm in this place of like, everybody's like, yeah, cool. That's great for you. Mm, Christians, nice. And I look here and I see the bodies in the street. It's vivid. It's brutal. It's gross. It's hard to ignore. And it sends a shocking message to us. You better watch out. This could be you. This is what we think about. Your words in the kingdom of God will kill you. The nations respond by sending gifts to each other. We've killed off the Christians. Out there right now, there may be that sense in America of like, finally, we've shut them up. We've exposed them for who they are. They're so shallow anyway. Those Christians, they're the one who ruined everything. And so they can finish our sentences. They can finish the verses we have. They use the verses. They talk about, they know the movies we're putting out. They write articles about them. They're like, oh, look at those Christians. Look at what they're doing. And I just say, Lord, what needs to happen? Can we think of a moment in Christian history where a group of people saw a dead body on public display and mocked it and made fun of it? Religious people, government people. Can we think of a time? Yeah, we can. 33 AD. 
And nobody was saying, wow, what a witness. Everybody was saying, tough luck for that guy. And it looked bad for a time, which is kind of what the passage is. It's going to look bad. It's going to feel difficult. But then resurrection, vindication. So how can we begin to creatively speak and live in a way that both draws people and still speaks hard truth that threatens their very existence on this planet, even in the midst of the threat of us suffering the same fate. I'm, I'm learning. I feel like I'm learning, and I also feel like I'm unlearning this. If we're to be temples, though, if God measures our temple right now, this little temple, and says, oh, Chad, we need to do something here. And we're supposed to tell God's story then let's tell the truth. Let's tell the truth. I want to show you something, and I mentioned a painting that moved me recently. This is called The Raft of the Medusa. Theodore Garicol. I don't know if I did that right in French, but you may be like, cool, whatever. It's an old painting. The interesting thing about this was it was based on a real-life sinking of a ship that had just happened. And back then when they painted pictures, there was a time called neoclassicism, and they painted pictures like this. Hello, we are going to war. It is magnificent. We are victorious. And so you can find that if you just look up neoclassicism, look up some of the art today, you'll know what I mean. Everybody's like perfectly posed. It's soft. It just has this glow about it. And the stories are hundreds of years old. They're like Greek stories of victories and wars, but nothing is authentic and raw and gritty. And so Theodore said, you know what? I am not painting that. And he said, what's something that's just happened in the world? And there was a, a ship, 150 people. It sank. 15 or so were left. And they started eating each other. And the story was in the news. And so he's like, yep, that's it. I'm painting that. And you're like, what? He went to the morgue to study dead bodies. He's like, I really want to get that color right of a corpse. So what you don't know about Theodore was he was an abolitionist, hated slavery. And so who does he put at the top of the painting? A Haitian slave. So people were like, oh, we don't like that. We don't like you going after us that way. And then he painted the truth in, and these, you could see, just look up romanticism because it was neoclassicism to French romanticism. And they started painting like this and people were so mad. They were so repelled. They were angry about it. How could you say those things? We don't say that kind of stuff. We don't paint that way. We paint this way. But they wanted to tell the truth. We need to deal with the fact that this happened. So it was a major transition in art history. Don't know if you care about that kind of thing, but it really messed with me. Now, this painting is in the Louvre. It's like, it's massive. But it's just one of those where you're like, what is going on here? What is happening? I want to come to grips with this. And I think as we think about dealing with difficult things, hard things, yesterday, was with some friends from here and family of Diane Burnett, who is home with Jesus. And that's a difficult thing to have somebody you love who's young, 
only 66, to not be with you anymore. But did you know that Diane painted with a broad brush, an authentic brush that said, I want people to know that it's okay. It's okay. I have my hope in Christ. Even with this very difficult thing, remember our guy in the courtroom with his hand on his head. I think he's here. I think he's here. Do we have that kind of witness? Are we painting with those colors? Do your words and life in Jesus have depth, beauty, intrigue, and nuance? Are people drawn to you, to look at you, to stare at your life while being simultaneously bothered that you're being so authentic and still have hope? How could you have hope? Don't you want to be mad? Yeah, sure, I do, and I am. But I cannot deny who he is. Last few verses. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Anybody know that? The kingdoms of this world. Anybody know? This is Handel, baby. Forever and ever. Hallelujah. This is Handel's Messiah. And he's like, I'm going to paint this. I'm going to paint this. I'm going to write a song about this. And we're going to sing it. And people are going to be moved. And we are, aren't we? Still. You hear the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Okay. That's somebody painting with a brush. That's somebody saying, I'm going to write something. And the 24 elders, verse 16, who were seated before God on their thrones, fell face down and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the almighty who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come. I highlighted that in my notes. For the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. We don't like that. We'll talk about it in a minute. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. Remember what we've been talking about with temple before you think that that's a real building. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, an earthquake and severe hail. So the seventh trumpet is the trumpet of trumpets. When that thing's blowing, you better know him. You better know Christ. God is on trial right now. And if we go with that symbolic interpretation that we're in the 42 months, but as will soon be seen and experienced, things are not as they seem. Something else is coming, a great reversal, the reality that God is actually in complete control of this whole thing. Even as the nations trample, even as they mock, this is a time, a time for the world to appear to win, to appear to destroy but Handel puts it right. This is going to happen. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of Jesus. So the dead will be judged. 
You don't just go and you're done. Everybody's resurrected. I don't know if you knew that. The Bible tells us everybody's resurrected. Some to eternal life with Jesus, some to eternal condemnation. We still don't like that. We say that's harsh. But you know what? God honors free will. He honors your choice. And for people who persist in saying, no, 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 stop bothering me. I don't want to respond to you. He gives you what you want. C.S. Lewis, if you're interested in reading a book on hell that is not fire, because even when the Bible talks about fire, it's not meaning that, okay? It's, it's much more complex and complicated. The Great Divorce is a book on hell, people on a bus heading into this nothingness. But one of the things he says is nobody is in hell that doesn't want to be there. God will honor your free will. He will honor that choice. And so if you get to that place where you've rejected, rejected, then he's like, then I will also honor my word to bring judgment on those who have rejected. God is on trial. And if I'm reading this correctly, I'm compelled to ask, when will the real judge take his seat? When, Lord? Get, get it going. <laughs> like, it's already bad. When? I would like for it to be now or soon. Well, maybe there's some things I want to do. But, you know, do you ever do that prayer? <laughs> I was totally a kid in high school, and I was like, I really want you to come back, Lord. But first, there's some things that I would really like to experience in life. Like, this shows like the non-understanding of eternity in the kingdom. But when? Scripture will not tell you when, but it will tell you why it's delayed. And why is it delayed? People... People who need to hear and believe. And this last one is the one I want you to grab onto if you know Jesus. And people who still need to speak. Why is he delaying and coming back? Let's be blunt. The Lord is saying, I want you to do your job. I want you to speak for me. I want you to be a witness for me. I want you to be my current Moses and Elijah to hold out the truth, the reality of what is real and apply that in your life where people see it, not you just spouting a few verses, but this is who you are. It has become a part of you. You've eaten the book and it has become a part of your very being. I want you to speak for me. The people that don't know Christ around you, even your enemies, they're best opportunity to experience the love of Jesus and his kingdom is you. And I want to grow in this, y'all. I'm, I'm so, ah, it's, like a, it's a frustration. It's a holy frustration that I want to know how to have these conversations and how not just to be triggered into saying, nope, that's not it. You can't. Blah, 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 blah. I, want to, I want to paint those kind of pictures for people with my life. Where they say, Phew. I was talking with somebody after the first service. They're like loving the new place where God is giving them the permission to be honest about where they are <laughs> and to say that they're having a hard time. And I remind you and I reminded them, the Psalms actually give you the words to do it. You want to complain to God? It's full of it. It's full of it. An authentic witness for Jesus. People need to hear People 
right here too, need to speak. We must be a witness for Christ. And I'm willing to admit that we have a witness problem and that we don't know what it means and that I am wanting in this area. And I want to grow. I want to grow. I want to see us grow where people can actually experience the kingdom of God in our midst. He won't come back until we do. I'll say that with authority, I think. That's clear. He's not coming until, because what does John get? You got to speak, buddy. Tell them to speak. Tell them to speak. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the complexity and the levels of intricacy and depth that I am starting to see in who you are and the truth of who you are. Lord, I freely admit I've been one of those people who has stood in front of the painting of your kingdom and your word, and I've stood there with a chemical test kit and a spreadsheet. And I've wanted to test the colors and to scrape away stuff and get down to building blocks. And Lord, I think there's part of it where it's just like, just look at it. (laughs) Just look at it. Experience my love for you. Learn how to do this. Lord, we need some Theodore Jerichos in this room. We need some handles who are composing with their life words that draw people compassion that overwhelms someone. Lord, I I have found that to be true. Sometimes the world will just push, push, push because they're waiting until the Christians get triggered. And then, then they say, yep, see, I told you. And they walk away. But Lord, what if we stay? What if we stay and we don't walk away and we love them anyway and we continue to say, yes, we actually disagree there. <laughs> but I, I want to hang in and be your friend and I want to keep talking about this. So Lord, here's a simple prayer. Help. Help us. Help us learn to do this. And God, for those who are um, needing to hear how much you love them and how great your kingdom is and how amazing and with those last set of verses that that's going to be a real thing. That's going to be a real thing. God, would they have the grace and the mercy to say yes today, to respond to you today? Would you use uh, this last song, Lord, uh, just to walk amongst us and to encourage us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you feel so led, let's stand together and sing.